Hello, Conversations with Dwyer listeners. If you are enjoying the podcast but you want a little bit more, you can become a Patreon subscriber, and for $5 a month, you can get bonus content, bonus episodes, and a podcast that I create solely for Patreon where I talk to comedians about the music that they like. And you get a pin that was created by Charlene Nee of the, the, the Conversations with Dwyer logo. So please, become a Patreon subscriber. The link is in my show notes under All Things Dwyer, or you can just go to themattdwyer.com. Thank you, and enjoy this episode of Conversations with Dwyer. Hello and welcome to Conversations with Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is a music podcast, and that song that played me in is called Blind Eye from Boyfriend, and I'm very excited to have Boyfriend on the podcast. If you, for some reason, are unaware of her and her music, I encourage you to go check out her rich library, all the that stuff is in the show notes, the links to that. She's incredible. The first time I heard her, I was just like, holy shit, I love this music. I love her videos. Uh, it's a full creative experience, her work. So I pl- encourage you to check it out. And I'm very excited. I talked about this when I had uh, Karu Ishibashi from the band Kishibashi on the podcast a couple weeks ago about how some of these conversations that I've been having, like, you know, they're fun, they're challenging, but also, like, I learned something and my perspective shifts on some things, and I had that with Boyfriend, so I'm very grateful that I had this conversation with her and and, and that she did the podcast because she's uh, a unique, cool individual, and I'm very stoked. And and you know what? She works with Big Frida. That alone is enough to just be like, you could rest on that for the rest of your life. Like, yeah, I write a song, I write songs with Big Frida. And that would make you cool for life. But she's got her own music and world, and she's just goddamn awesome. So, and just real quick, go to themattdwyer.com. That'll link you to anything mine, show notes, uh, social media, all that stuff. Website still might be under construction. It's taking a little bit longer than I would like. But when your partner in life is your web designer, can't really do much, can you? Because you know that they're juggling babies and all that kind of bullshit, and I can't be like, I'm paying you to do this because I'm not paying her to do it. (laughs) I mean, I pay her with love and hugs. Um, All right, enough of my bullshit. Let's get on to my great conversation with Boyfriend and please check out some more of her music and buy it. Enjoy the conversation. Hope that Jesus ain't watching this. Dance like no one's watching. Make love like us is turning a blind eye. I just, uh, no matter what goes on or wrong, I just assume it's my error. So you could take I'm that. the same way. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was thinking, I don't know. I just, I live in a world where everything's my fault, including homelessness. Why? <laughs> <laughs> I really, yeah, yeah. What what makes you what makes you think everything's your fault? Uh, probably because I was raised in a uh, somewhat abusive conservative church. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, yeah. I was raised in a somewhat abusive working class Catholic family, but then veered into born again Christianity. Where I don't know. Yeah. So shame, guilt, those. Uh, do you ever wake up and just feel shame and guilt and don't know why? Oh, yeah. I mean, less and less. Oh, so that's good. <laughs> but, but, yeah. Please tell me your secret, how you feel less and less. <laughs> oh, I've been doing a lot of, like, I mean, I guess for lack of a better term, personal growth work. You know, like I have a coach and a weekly meditation call I do and, you know, work. <laughs> Yeah, god damn. The 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 fucking puritans really got in their brains, didn't they? They sure did. Did you when you were in that, did you did you sense that there that something wasn't correct or that it, it you didn't feel like yourself? Was there any of that? Oh, yes. I would say there were cracks of light. Um I would read something that would pop something open and then that would lead to something else. Um, but it wasn't like a watershed. It was like slow trickles. Um, ironically, 
the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> I know, isn't that hilarious? It was like something that really actually made a difference for me because I had never thought of the Bible as anything other than the Word of God. And so to think of it from this like historical context, even in just like a silly, you know, paperback thriller, um, that was like a little prying of something open. And then um, I started reading a lot of Kurt Vonnegut. And um, I think the thing that was probably like the biggest, like, aha, (laughs) was when we got to the uh, class on like purity, (laughs) i.e. sexual purity, i.e. abstinence. Um, Things just kept not feeling right to the point that I actually decided to not participate in the big... um, end of summer culmination of the program where we would literally walk down the aisle with like our youth minister and put on a promise ring to promise abstinence. I didn't do that. And I was like really involved, um, with all the other activities. And so that was kind of one of the first, like, Oh, and I I stopped going, um, you know, less and less and less after that. How did people respond to you saying, I'm not going to put on a promise ring? even know i don't remember i like i don't know (laughs) i don't know if it's because i blocked it out or um i i don't think i like communicated that you know like dramatically amid the youth group or anything i'm sure i just like told my mom i'm not gonna go do this and i do know that there's a couple of the elders um which is like an official word for i guess a white man who um (laughs) who has been going to the church longer than you (laughs) but no there are like I don't know I'm sure it's like sitting on the board or something um that like did come to my mom and say like oh we'd really love for her and then my sister because we were both really involved to come back um but it wasn't like very dramatic um because at least the very specific cultural pie that I, I don't know what the word is like grew up in, um, is very like anti, um, confrontational. Like no one ever yells. Like my stepmom's from the North. She's a Yankee. (laughs) And I remember the first time she like yelled me and my sister's like, what's that? Like, (laughs) why is this person screaming? That's weird doesn't she know we're all passive aggressive here? (laughs) Um, So yeah, it wasn't like, despite the like intensity of the sort of church experience I grew up in, there wasn't a very strong evangelical bent to it, um, which is sort of a weird thing that I think is specific to the church of Christ, which is the church that I grew up in that it, um, it, it, in the unofficial doctrine of it, there is no doctrine. That's what sets it apart is that it's just straight up the Bible. And so it's all about the most literal as possible interpretation of the Bible. Um, so built into that is the belief and concept that other Christianity, uh, branches are going to hell because they like do have doctrine or they, you know, they're doing this, 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 and this wrong. Um, so there's like a lot of outward looking like, and that like, Oh, they're going to hell. They're going to hell. They're going to hell. But there isn't a, I don't think of a culture of like confrontation around that. It was, I was always just kind of like, Oh, that girl in my class, like, I know that she's Catholic. Wow. Like, I wonder if she knows she's going to hell. Like, I remember thinking that, (laughs) but it's not like I like went up to her and was like, Hey, I'm going to try and save you, (laughs) (laughs) which would make way more sense. But that was my experience at least through all of that. Of course, everyone has their own version of how they navigate and survive childhood and even that specific church. Um, but that's how I took it in. Did you like, cause in my high school youth group, like, you know, there was always the talk about abstinence and, and then once I left, I found out everybody was fucking and I was like, what? Like, how, (laughs) how did I miss this? Right. Like you were left out. I mean, maybe I, maybe I didn't put off a good fuck vibe in high school. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe they were like, no, Dwyer's just going to fumble around. Stay away. Oh man. Well, I definitely don't dig the abstinence 
route. I actually read something like during the more intense era of COVID stuff, how like there was this comparison in um, the New York times to abstinence only education to some of the ways that people were interpreting the protocol and how it can create like a stronger reactionary bent, like how they were like basically saying like if someone's outdoors and greater than six feet apart, it's okay for them to not have their mask on and like freaking out at them about having their mask on when they're also outside and they're far apart is just going to like make them like give up all the protocol altogether. So that was interesting. Like, and it definitely applies to me in like other terms of moral navigation. That's like, if you allow just like a little bit of bending, I think it's much less like much less likely to break, you know, like a tree, like it's able to bend in the wind. That's why it doesn't just like snap in half the first time there's a storm that rolls through. Um, but that's definitely not like how I was taught things. Things are worse use black or, or white, not, gray <laughs> where the, the more and more and more and more i see is every everything's gray yeah world of gray yeah the more i got away from my church i guess did you have when you when you broke away did you because i thought i had like a lot of anger that i was sort of bought into this th- thing and i felt also that i had allowed myself to be manipulated which I I surely had been. Did you have any of that to sort of f- those feelings? Yeah, when- I was uh, definitely angry. Um, and I went to, so I, I let, I was also at a Christian school for 10 years, like a really small, like 50 to 60 kids in a class. And when I say class, I mean like 10th grade, not like, you know, home ec. <laughs> not that anyone has that anymore. <laughs> uh, which they should, but that's another topic. Um, I transferred to uh, Hume Fogg, which is a super rad, awesome um, magnet school in downtown Nashville that is, you know, full of all these really intelligent kids from all across the city that have to have certain test scores and everything to get into it. And when I was in line, just in the very first like orientation to get my books and stuff, the kid in front of me, I still remember him. I'm going to give him a shout out, Nick Livingston redheaded kid, super radical. I was like talking about communism and how, you know, he didn't believe in a God and all. And like, I, my mind, my head like exploded because I had never been around someone who could just so confidently and like without drama articulate beliefs other than Christian, much less church of Christ Christian. Um, and like, that was just sort of the default for me up until maybe like 10th grade, 12th grade was like, Oh, everyone just assumes like, I just, you know, you just go through the world assuming everyone's Christian. Everyone is Republican. Everyone is da 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 all these things. And the first two years that I was at this other school, I started being like testing the water. Like, so yeah, I mean, like I still call myself a Christian, but I don't necessarily think that it was literally the son of God who came, you know, like that was like a big deal to articulate that. And then by the time I got to college, I went out to UCLA. I didn't know anybody at all. And there's like literally more students from Africa or Europe, like entire continents than there are Southern, like from the Southern United States at UCLA. It was like such a rarity for a Southern girl to be there. And, um, I like, I guess because of my accent and stuff, people wanted to talk to me and ask me a bunch of questions. And I kept seeing how Christianity wasn't the default and it just kept blowing my mind. And I just started getting more and more mad because I realized like I was in this thing that these other people weren't in. But at the same time, I didn't really have a lot of companions in those conversations because people were just like, yeah, we, we get it. Like, I remember one of my earliest friends, I was like on another rant about the church and yada, 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 some sort of philosophical thing. I'm sure I thought I was really brilliant. <laughs> and my friend like literally Andrew was like, honey, I get it. None of us believe that it's okay. <laughs> you know, like they're just like already so far ahead of me. Um, I don't even remember what the question was. <laughs> uh, that makes two of us. Uh, was there, <laughs> Was L.A., like, what made you choose L.A.? And was that, uh, like, a huge culture shock? 
from um well i wanted to do film um and even though ucla you have to go for a couple years and then apply for the film program so it was a little bit risky because i got into a few prestigious film schools elsewhere they just weren't in la and i knew i just wanted to be there um so i ended up choosing that and doing creative writing instead and i worked in film that's what i did before i became a musician anyways i just didn't do the film school thing because i was already like interning and working on sets and things by the time i was like a halfway through my freshman year so i just didn't want to do that buckle down film school thing where you like can't do extracurriculars they're so intense about it there um but i think that's why i would like i was really gonna be a filmmaker that was gonna be my thing <laughs> what, <not> <laughs> what what films were like what attracted you to filmmaking and what what films like who were the, some of the filmmakers and stuff that you sort of admired um i mean like when i think about where i was at then it's kind of like embarrassing and silly um because i'm pretty sure one of my essays to get into school i was like writing about moulin rouge <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen it, so I can't, but... I mean, don't get me wrong. It's awesome. It's really, really great. It's great fun. Um, But (laughs) I think for me, the thing that... um, It's like such a high sensory form of storytelling because you've got sound and visual. um, And I would just get completely sucked into the reality And that is definitely carried over into what I'm trying to do now because I still have a very visual interaction with my own songs. And like my show is to me the most realized version of what I'm trying to do and how I would want someone to witness it. Cause like every time I perform, say you will, I'm in a wedding dress because that's what that song is about. (laughs) You know, it's like, like there's like this visual that's like, the same to me as like the melody that it's so interwoven did because when you say you because i've read that you say you're a musical nerd is it spe- specific to film musicals or are you just like do you also oh no i love oh i live for the stage my friend <laughs> i'm like going to the matinee sitting and the vi- like the seat in the very very back all the like white haired old ladies that have their season tickets in New York. Like I, cause I, I spend a lot of time in New York as most musicians do, I'd say. Um, cause you like the industries in New York and LA and Atlanta pretty much. Um, and I always, always go and see a show by myself. It's like one of my most pleasurable experiences. Like, do you ever have a moment where you're like, Oh, this is why I want to make money so that I can spend it on this. Like that is how I feel every time I'm walking up the stairs to go find my seat at a Broadway show. I fucking love it. Oh, can I say that? Yeah. I've I've already said fuck a million times. (laughs) Okay, great. (laughs) Remember the thing I said, but nobody wanted to fuck me. (laughs) Oh, right. right, right, right. Did, did, why didn't you, why didn't you pursue like live doing live musicals instead of film? Um, so self-conscious about my singing. I mean, now I'm able to be like, Hey, I can sing. You could, but really that fucking took, sing. I mean, that took me a long time to even, I think that is one of the main reasons why I was like, I'm going to rap because I couldn't bear the thought of, I'm going to sing the words I want to say. Um, and there's other aspects too, like as a creative writing major and an English major, I love how many words you put into any given line of rap like there's just so much more in there when you look at the lyrics of any rap song and then hold it up next to the lyrics of any sung song because <laughs> it's just like syllabically more dense um but yeah i say that because i did musical theater all through high school and and all of that but my sister who is also a songwriter has this just amazing amazing voice and i just it never occurred to me that like I can sing because I'm not as good as her. So I just was like, I'm the sister with the less good voice. And that was just like so much part of how I thought of myself in the world that it never even occurred to me like, oh, I can sing and other people won't wince to hear it. (laughs) But you wanted to sing, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love, and I, I sang my lead parts in the plays and all that stuff. But even now I'm just like, like sometimes I get asked to like sit in 
and I know I'm like sandwiched in between like amazing legitimate vocalists. Like I've had to follow Irma Thomas like multiple times and I'm like, what are, why? <laughs> why <are> y'all <laughs> do this? Oh man. I think I'm a good recording artist. Like I can, I can, and that's a different talent that people don't really necessarily realize this distinction between uh, performing artists and recording artists. Like I do think that I'm a great performer. Um, but when it comes to singing live, I, always am a little like wobbly um but then in the in the booth i can get really precise and like do crazy high stuff and find harmonies and things that just when i'm in front of a live audience it just falls out of my head why do you think that is i don't know um i mean i'm sure confidence is a large part of it that my confidence is still a little sapling you know um but like i sang through church um as well. And it was never a like lead sort of thing. Like in the church of Christ, you don't have musical instruments. It's all voices. And so it's all about the blending of the voices and finding a harmony. And there's not like a vocalist out front, like killing it, like you have in the gospel tradition. And so I think that like, I just don't have that, like going back to childhood, thing in my bone where I'm like out in front of everyone else singing. Now I'm out in front of everyone else, like making them laugh maybe, or like doing some other type of thing. But like my, I don't have the confidence that my voice is like the one that's supposed to be heard above all the rest. And you come from a musical family, don't you? Your dad's a producer and he's a musician as well. Right. Or am I insane? No, no, you're totally right. Yeah. He's a songwriter. So I grew up in like the country music world. Um, He wrote for like, Billy Ray Cyrus and Tim McGraw and Brooks and Dunn and I don't know. Diamond Rio was like the band that he produced. This is all nineties country music, like Garth Brooks era. Um, and then my stepmom is also a songwriter, musician, singer. I was like her tour manager for a while. Um, and then both of my, I have like two first cousins that are my age and they're both like savant classical musicians. Like my cousin, we have the same due date. Actually he beat me into this realm by five days, but we had, the <laughs> uh, but he's like had his pieces performed at Disney concert hall and like flown to Beijing. And, you know, he's like, Oh, I just wrote a symphony. No big deal. <laughs> so yeah, I'm a super musical family. It's, it's great. It's awesome. Were your parents also like, I, I guess maybe this is, I don't know. Cause I, when I think of most of the musicians I know and musical families, I know personally, I don't think of conservatism and like church of Christ, but were your folks like it, that conservative? I know that it's a weird thing because it's, it's a yes. And, um, we all kind of migrated away simultaneously. Like my dad leaving pulled me and I also pulled him. Like we kind of all just, woke up, I guess, like within months of each other, years of each other. Um, and like they grew up in it. So it was just kind of like, Oh, this is just what we do. But it wasn't like we'd sit around the table at night talking about how gay people are going to hell or, you know, it wasn't like, it didn't like make its way into our home. It was like the institutions that we signed up for, like our school and our church like that's where it lived. And and I can't obviously speak to everyone who has had a church of Christ experience, but I know that a few other people have had a similar thing where it's like an odd disconnect between the sort of intensity of the actual institution that you're a part of and how it doesn't spill over into your, your evening or your, you know, day to day dialogue with your parents and with your immediate family. I, I don't know why that is. <laughs> I wonder, I'm sure shame has something to do with it. I mean, my grandfather would always say a blessing, but like that, you know, wasn't like, Hey, let's talk about that. Like let's roll up our sleeves and talk about why we aren't allowed to have musical instruments. You know, like never, never talk about it. It's like taboo. Yeah. It's, I, it's weird. To, like the, the further I get away from it, I'm just like, and maybe I'm not around it obviously anymore is like my family is still got a lot of Christians in it. And I just like, really? Like, really? Like I, f- I feel like Christianity and McDonald's are two things. I'm like, people, we're still doing that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I still think yeah. that's, that's good. Well, I think that like 
and for both of those examples, like privilege has a huge thing to do with it. Like I don't have to eat McDonald's, so I, I don't. And I have access to the resources and knowledge of, of why it's not good for me. And I think the same could be said of the church. Like another thing I really try to stay like present to is the concept that the church of the oppressor is not the same as the church of the oppressed. So like my version as a white person experiencing church in a a church of white privileged middle-class people is a different experience than any person of color, be it like someone from Brazil who's Catholic or someone from the South of the United States who's black and going to a Baptist church. Like they're having such different narratives. Um, My experience is that most of the like white Protestant based Christianity is about what you shouldn't do and shame. And it's like a list of rules. Um, Whereas like liberation theology is about, you know, throwing off your chains and redemption and forgiveness and like joy and like celebration and just like messages that I can get down with. And I didn't really get a lot of those in my church, like, especially because I I went to my grandparents' churches, which one's in rural Alabama and the other was in rural Georgia. I'm talking like drop ceiling, fluorescent lights, congregation of 35, like deep, uh, country stuff. And the sermons were never like joyful or celebratory. It was like, here's an example of people that have got it wrong. Here's why you shouldn't get it wrong. Like that was just the message over and over again. And there's not like much there for me to be cool with. I'm like, no, I'm not cool with that. I'm not cool with that. Whereas like I can go to like the gospel tent at Jazz Fest and hear from these traditions that are rooted in like hearing messages like you are loved, you are enough. Um, that, that I can really get down with, even if there's like aspects of it that I'm like, Ooh, I don't agree with that. (laughs) Like, you know, homosexuality is like always one of those. It's like, Oh, why do y'all have to keep worrying about that? (laughs) You're doing so well. (laughs) Um, Get, Get back to the love and acceptance stuff. Yeah. Um, did you was did a lot of this open up to you when you left home and and came to uh sinful hippie liberal california <laughs> um <laughs> where i live yeah. by the way oh yeah it's the, i love la um i mean yes and no because those ideas and concepts were always just a little bit around the corner and out of reach a little bit but like something i noticed uh moving to LA is like my friends that grew up in California in these more liberal cultures and mindsets, they didn't have to reckon with something to arrive at their belief set that, you know, they recycle and love the earth and don't believe that gay people are going to hell. If there even is a hell, there's probably not even a hell, yada, yada, yada. Like all of these things were just like given. Whereas like I had to actually choose to, extricate myself from communities on behalf of embracing those beliefs. And so that's one of the things I really love about the South is like for all of its ick, there's like the conviction that you get on the other side of that is, is super strong. Um, and you have to, um, you have to like find something beautiful to hold on to it instead of just like take it for granted. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when you started getting into production and stuff, was there, did, did you feel like uh, maybe that element of showbiz wasn't for you or like, what was that? Cause it can be weird. Like I, I moved here and I PA'd and all that stuff. And it's just like, it's kind of a motherfucker. (laughs) Well, I love to put out fires and I've always been really good at events and like delegation and triage and and like this needs to get done. Boom, 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 boom. Like I'm a sprinter, not a marathon runner. And that aspect of it was really awesome and worked well for me. But what 
initially was the rub that had me leave was I was just helping other people's ideas come to life and was like, I have some of my own that I want to get out there. And I actually did love that part of it. Like I loved like, okay, this scene, we need a staircase and the kid, you know, is in a fight with this other kid and they're supposed to drag each other by the hair up the staircase. All right. Well, this house, we can't afford it. The one with the staircase, but this house has a hallway. How can we make it work in the hallway? You know, it's like, I love that part of production. That's like protecting the story. It's like, you know, it's like you have this fragile little pedal (laughs) that you're trying to like navigate through budgets and schedules and egos and politics to get it from the point of conception to like where someone can actually witness it and view it. And I loved that part of it, of like being a courier of an idea. Um, And then I kind of like looked up and was like, I haven't seen sunlight in five weeks and I'm the first one here and I'm the last one to leave. And I make sure everybody else gets their per diem. And I I was just like, wait, production is like abusive. Um, You know, the director's guild, like I think has the, producers guild sort of by the balls and it's just like you you kind of can top out where it's like is this what my future is going to be that I like work a 12-hour day minimum that's just expected of me and I'm making sure that all these other creative people you know have the twenty thousand dollars to spend on the rug that's going to be seen for eight seconds in the show you know like this isn't it just didn't align anymore and the very final production job I worked like fucking symbolic um, was in New Orleans and I got food poisoning. I was the only vegetarian on set and we were working the OMAs, which is online music award, um, 24 hour shoot. So we were going for, and we got it, but we've since been beat, which is bullshit. Cause the people who beat us used a, a jet and we were using a bus, but we did the most shows in 24 hours, uh, with the flaming lips. So I was one of the production coordinators and, because it's a 24 hour shoot, you can't stop. So I'm like running back and forth to the bathroom, like puking and (laughs) big Frida was one of the performers for like the big gear up. to when the flaming lips like arrived for the final concert and I like peeked my head through the curtain and just was like, I'm done being on this side of the curtain. It just was so clear. Just like my body, you know, was like, rejecting everything about it. And eventually they did let me go home for like a couple hours to nap. And I was trying to, I lived in the French quarter and I was trying to get into my gate and I knew I wasn't going to make it. Cause I had, I was like fumbling with the key. And so like I ran back out and opened up a trash can. And as I was doing that, this walking tour, like a ghost tour was circling up and I just hurled so violently like you know when it's food poisoning how violent it is and they were all just like standing there I started taking pictures <laughs> and like videos and then the tour I was like let's move down this way but then of course everyone, yeah it was like just you couldn't script it you know and I was like yeah that's the end that's the last production job I ever worked and then I started um volunteering and doing like kids stuff because kids are the future <laughs> <laughs> had you already moved to New Orleans from Los Angeles? I had had a foot in both. I've always kind of had a foot in both. Like eventually the nonprofit that I was working for offered me a full-time position. So I like uprooted my LA life and was in New Orleans full-time for a few years. Um, But like I can, I do in my heart consider myself bi-coastal in that way because I bounce back and forth. Do you feel... I've I've only been to New Orleans briefly. I've been obsessed with the city for forever and the food and pretty much everything. I'm even wearing a WWOZ t-shirt as well. Nice. <laughs> Love it. But uh I was curious because uh, if it if moving there how that influenced your your music and your creativity and sort of uh just how it influenced you. Oh yeah. I hadn't really started music until I was spending at least half, if not all of my time in, in New Orleans. That's what really nurtured it. Um, cause LA was where I went to do the production work and New Orleans was where I kind of had my karmic reset. I would just bounce back and forth and I started performing, um, before even really releasing stuff. I would just kind of like 
oh, there's an open mic or so-and-so is having a house party and they're going to let me get on the mic. And, um, I had to compete with, you know, someone ordering their drink or two doors down as a brass band or, you know, just like no one's there to like, listen to my little voice on top of a track on top of an MP3. Like you have to really, especially with my early stuff, it was like very like rooted in comedy and wordplay and like just goofiness. It's like, if you just are kind of listening in the background, it's like completely unremarkable. You have to actually be listening to the words to get it. And so I had to figure out ways to make sure that people would do that. And that really, really influenced and like shaped and created this character that I now play. (laughs) Um, And I, I mean, it's not lost to me that that was simultaneously to working with kids. So commanding a room full of like, five to 12 year olds isn't so different from commanding a room of drunk 40 year olds. You know, you bribe them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's, I mean, to fight to get a a room that's not into it is, is a, is a fucking challenge for sure. Be it kids. Cause I've taught kids as well. I taught like, uh, improv at a summer camp. And I mean, that was, uh, maddening at times, quite honestly. (laughs) Yeah, man. It's crazy. Like I look back, that was so hard and I had no business doing it. I really shouldn't have been where I, doing that. <laughs> like, I look back, I'm like, Oh my God. But hopefully I didn't cause too much damage or, you know, I'm not going to be brought up in too many therapy sessions down the road. <laughs> Is it true? Cause it says, I've I read that it said that, uh, that you discovered you could rap like at a it it sounded like a movie a moment from a a biopic where it's like you're drunk and you start rapping and you're like hey i'm pretty good at this is that actually that is how it's how it was yeah which um are you gonna write your own biopic like eminem and and be the star of that because oh my gosh that would be so fun i'm a leo so like yes (laughs) (laughs) like any narcissistic exercise is like I'm down. Like I, I have, I'm obsessive journaler. I have a journal entry for like every day of my life of the past several years. And like, I keep all of my ticket stubs and everything. I'm like basically creating a museum of me, (laughs) like, like my existence on earth. I don't even care if anyone else ever sees it. It's just so that I can like look at my life. Like, Oh, I did this. I was here. So like, would I make my own biopic for sure? That would be so fun. Um, but yeah, the, the drunken freestyles were definitely a thing. And, and I've never, this is a character flaw of mine. I, if I'm not good at something quickly, I just like not only give it up, but like violently reject it, like no, and push it away. And so I just was good at this quickly. And so I kept doing it because I got that immediate payoff feeling like I was good at it. <laughs> when did you, I've meant to ask this, like, when did you first start listening to rap? Like, cause I can't imagine church of Christ would be too welcoming to rap. <laughs> well, that's the other weird thing is like, there's just all these contradictions, you know? Um, cause I was definitely like, you know, I'm from Nashville living, listening to 36 mafia and Nelly was huge. And, um, I, you know, mainstream music already had rap in like every other song I'd say, like by the time I was growing up in the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, I mean, I can remember, like, I think the first rap song where I like printed out the lyrics and like memorized every single word was a Nelly song from country grammar. Um, I mean, if you, some people would off would be like, that's not rap, <laughs> but I, that's the thing. It was so distinct. Like I wouldn't have those CDs at church camp or on the bus or anything like that. But then like I could come home and listen to them. No problem. You know, like we are a musical house. Like my dad gave me my first Weezer CD. Like you need to hear this. You know, my dad brought me home Jagged Little Pill. Like you need to hear this. Like it's, it's not clear why, (laughs) why some things are so, conservative and others are so like liberal and awesome. And I'm so lucky for that. I'm, I'm really, really grateful that I have like such a transparent and radical relationship with my family that really I can point to examples of all the way back, even during 
the times when the institutions that we subscribed to were not that way, if that makes sense. Yeah. So you'd been kind of focusing on rap in a, in, for a long time. Like the, the fact that you were memorizing lyrics is an interesting thing to me. Or not. Yeah, I guess it is. I just, I knew I could do, like, I can do things fast. (laughs) (laughs) And it was fun to, to, like, see my friend's reaction to me being able to do, to go along with the whole thing. And I listened, writings on the wall was also really formative. That's Destiny's Child. And a lot of the songs are, like, really verbose. Um, And I probably did that first was like just listening over and over and over again, memorizing. I mean, I still probably, if you put it on now, I'd know like every note of it. And, um, that is not so different than Nelly <laughs> when you think about it. Cause like Nelly was like basically singing. And so then Nelly leads to, you know, the next thing. So it just kind of unraveled, I guess, or unfolded, not unraveled. Was So when you were drunkenly rapping for your friends, was that after that, was that what you were like, Hey, maybe I should do this and started pursuing that. Um, well, I was always writing like with the journaling. Um, I would just like write like a really long rhyming thing. And it didn't occur to me that it was a song. It was just like, Oh, rhyming stuff. I'm writing long rhyming things. And then with the drunken freestyling stuff, it started to occur to me like, Oh, like I could like, read one of my rhyming things <laughs> to my friends. And so I got up the courage to do that a few times. Um, and they loved it and thought it was funny. And it was really awesome to make my friends laugh and show them this thing I'd written. And then I was like, Oh, I should find like a beat to put this on top of. Cause I was like, just doing everything acapella. And so that next thing I know, I'm like, Oh wait, that's, it's a song. <laughs> like snuck up on me like oh this is a song now did you uh, create the beats yourself or uh, like learn how to did you have to learn no um i was just fine i would find instrumentals um and then eventually find people to send me things like i used to i was like always like vagabond traveling girl i mean i still am and would do like craigslist rideshare all the time i don't do that anymore but i used to and like I remember meeting a few people just through rideshare, like, Oh, I make beats. So I was like, all right, send me some <laughs> Like next thing I know, like I'm releasing a song from like some dude that drove me to Birmingham, <laughs> a beat that he made one night, you know, it was just like very, it was also, I mean, looking back like 2011, 2012, those were just like really fun. Like fl- it was just a flowing thing. It wasn't, I've got to do this. I've got to let, the world hear my voice. I've got to make a career. I've got to like, I didn't have this like singular ambition to like become something. It, it was just kind of like, what's the next thing. And I've always been that way. Really? Like even with the whole, like, I'm going to be a filmmaker was like, what I meant was I'm going to go to film school. You know, I wasn't like really thinking like five years, six years down the road. And I still don't to this day. I'm, <laughs> I'm like thinking like six months max. <laughs> are you surprised how how much people have taken them like gotten into your what you do uh yeah i am i am now i mean gosh like my dad told me this the other day and it freaked me out he said that i like set him down in 2012 and i was like dad i need you to know that i've been making rap music i'm not expecting any help from you but i am i think the best rapper alive <laughs> like wait who was that because like where did she go I haven't met her in years I never even knew she existed like that level of like blind ambitious confidence I'm like I I would have never thought that I had that maybe my dad made that story up because that's how foreign that concept feels to me (laughs) because I'm continuously shocked and surprised when people like respond to what I'm doing, it's always still thrilling and awesome. Like I I can recognize that I'm good. Like I, I really feel like my shows are good. I feel so proud of my shows and I know that they're awesome. I change costume every single song. I do my own choreography and props and like pick everyone's costumes out. And it's just like the most fun, awesome, creative exercise. And I know that it's an entertaining show. And I like walk away from that very confidently, 
but that's kind of it. Like imposter syndrome pops up like around the corner all the time. Do you think you can be an artist without imposter syndrome? Oh, I think some of them are out there. Like, I mean, doesn't like, I can't speak for Beyonce, but I'm just saying like, doesn't she, doesn't she have moments where she's like, oh, what the fuck am I doing? I don't know. I, I mean, don't know how, how, how could she? <laughs> I mean, I know, but it's like any, any, I mean, I know some like brilliant fucking people. I, one, I would even consider a genius and I don't toss that word around lightly. And even he's like, ah, you know, you give me too much credit. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, no, you have a body of work that's staggering. Well, it's all just like the ego trying to fight for its life and to prove to us that like it's worthy of being in the driver's seat. So that, that panic of not being good enough is like necessary for it to survive. You know, like if, if we're not concerned about being awesome and being filled with self doubt and stuff, we might actually stumble into Nirvana. So, so it's like the ego has to make sure that we're, we're worried about that so that it gets to stay alive and keep calling the shots. That's my thought. Yeah. I don't know. I just, when I was younger and things were happening, I've just found my ego fucked me. So I try to, (laughs) I try to keep ego at bay as much as possible and just try to focus, I guess on work. I don't know. Yeah, no, that's, that's what I'm saying is it's like that the ego is like, like I think wants us to be in that like unsure sort of like creating from this place of like, I'm trying to prove myself worth. Cause like all that's like rooted up, rooted in identity. Like I, 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 you know, like that stuff is toxic and also how most of us survive. And like, (laughs) how we like stay functioning. And it's like, I've been trying to really like, I wouldn't say like the ego death sort of like trendy buzzword thing. I I take some issue with because you do need it. It's part of you. Um, You wouldn't be a human if you didn't have it, but it's more about like finding the right seat on the bus for the ego. And then like, okay, you can drive like, you know, from here to there, but then you're going to get back in your other seat. You know, like it's more about like, training it (laughs) to act appropriately instead of completely run the show. Was it, um, and I like that by the way, find it that, uh, I didn't want to ignore that what you just said, but I was curious of what it's like to, cause New York, New, New Orleans seems like such a, I mean, it's such a musical city, obviously. And there's so many great talented people there. If that is to start performing music there, I just know if, I mean, <clears throat> I'm not in music, but it would, I don't, I don't think I would have the, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the mentality to try to compete in New Orleans. Yeah. I mean, I still, ugh, like I really struggle when people say that I'm a musician because I don't play an instrument. So it just feels like, whoa, careful. <laughs> um, but I had such a theatrical bent to what I was doing that it was actually like so New Orleans without at all being in competition with the capital M music of New Orleans. You know, it was like I have drag queens and burlesque and I invite people to come in lingerie. So there's costuming element to it that it really like fit right in in this surprising way and was so embraced in a way that I don't think it would have been if I had tried starting it elsewhere because there is this, um, celebration culture, I think is a good way to put it. That's like down with a theme. It's like down with going all in like, Oh, we got to get the hot glue gun out. Let's do it. Let's go. Like, and, and because what I was doing, um, fits in that world. I don't think people thought, to think to like, Hmm, but is it actually good music? You know, like it was, that wasn't the sort of, it was like, is it a good time? If that makes sense. It wasn't like people are showing up like, "Mm, she's not the best sax player I've ever seen. (laughs) Um, and then like more even special to me than that is the fact that I am now like a songwriter with 
Prez Hall and Galactic and Big Frida and like all these people I'm writing their songs and that is so special and like magic to me that I still can't, I'm like, whoa, they keep calling me to do their songs. <laughs> That's awesome. Cause I am a songwriter that I feel like when people say songwriter, I'm like, Oh yeah, I don't like shudder the way I do when someone says musician. Um, and so that it's like, I feel like I've really found where I fit in like to bring that silly metaphor background, like my seat on the bus in new Orleans is like, I can write songs and I can, throw really great show parties <laughs> called a show party. Do you write for or with big Frida? Uh, both. That's, I, I didn't know that, which is, I mean, I, I, I would be, I love big Frida. So that's, I mean, how did that feel? Like that must've felt like some, which is cause I wanted to ask you about that and preservation hall. Cause that must be, I mean, that's big, I, why can't I articulate this? God damn it. <laughs> Rarified air. Yes. See that you are the writer. Um, the big Frida situation came out of tour because I was his opening act for an entire run and sort of just like slowly unfolded. And I definitely began it nervous. Um, and now like I'd say that we work together twice a week. Like, every, I don't know, like all the time. It's just, it's a constant flow and it's awesome. Frida's oh, one of the best human beings ever. Just an incredible, incredible work ethic and an unrelenting enthusiasm about it. Like he is always aware of the fact that this is like lightning in a bottle. You know, it's like, wow, this is what we're getting to do. Like he just, he's like really... I've never seen like the malaise, you know, like, ugh, you know, like the un, um, unimpressed, you know, that sort of like attitude that can like happen when someone forgets that life's a miracle. Like that never happens with Frida. And so it keeps the work really, really fun. And, uh, we do, we, well, the, both Christmas EPs I've like co-produced and written and, um, me and Ryan, my creative partner do all the A&R for it. And then like, his most recent three singles I wrote and the, um, last EP, which came out during quarantine. So it didn't get as much love as it needed. I think I wrote four out of five songs on it. Um, so it's like become kind of my main thing. Like I almost spend more time doing big Frida stuff than boyfriend stuff lately. And then the press hall stuff is still forming. Um, and it definitely is like, whoa what like every time they like invite me back to the studio i'm like okay (laughs) like like scared but then also i recognize that it makes sense because like what they do is tell stories with their instruments and what i do is tell stories with words and so if they want to tell a story with words then they need someone else to come in because that's just like well we all have these other ways of telling stories and so i come in it's like oh wait i have a I have a place here. Like you're doing what you're doing. I'm doing what I'm doing. And they fit together like a puzzle. Um, and same with galactic. Um, I love, I love working with them. Um, yeah. The, the version of jealousy you do with preservation hall is just the first time I heard that. Cause I'd love the original version or at least the one I know of jealousy. And I was just like, both are just, God damn, they're good. <laughs> Thank you. I love it. I actually think my favorite thing that like, I'm still the most proud of is our cover of "You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch." Oh, it's great. It's on our Christ- like, it's on our Christmas playlist. If you oh nine, yeah, yeah. That's like my my favorite thing. I I think because it is so true to the musical theater root that I have, um, and it's nice that I could like play that for my grandmother. Now she's dead, (laughs) but if she were alive, I could play that for her and be like, I did this. And she wouldn't be like confused because I said fuck in it or something. (laughs) Um, as there, cause you, didn't you do like a semi scripted musical at preservation hall as well? Yeah. So it's called hag and last year would have been the fifth annual. Um, but we, obviously didn't do it. Um, so this year will be the sixth annual and it's a little three act musical that we do throughout the entire space. So like I take over 
the back rooms and the courtyard and you, it kind of progresses throughout the space. The audience like follows us and the concept is it's a, you know, ragtime for lack of a better term, uh, era brothel. And we have re-recorded and rearranged all of the songs to be of that era to sound as if, you know, you're there seeing press hall, but it's all boyfriend songs. Um, so that's so fun. It, it's, I really, really have a blast with that. Like if everything else went away and that's all that I did, I, I think it'd still be okay. Have you ever thought of about doing, cause we talked, we sort of jokingly talked about you doing a biopic, but have you ever thought about doing a sort of a one person musical or some, not even, doesn't even have to be one person of your story that would be along the lines of the bio? Um, not of my story. I've, I'm actually working on, um, a musical that isn't my story. I don't think I'm going to tell you what it is yet. I got to keep it a little up my sleeve a little longer cause she's too fragile. But, um, I like, I think that narrative songwriting and like narrative performance is definitely my calling card and like where I'm going to camp out for a little while. Cause even my shows for like jazz fest or Bonnaroo or whatever, are telling a story. It's just like very, very abstract, but like we start in a wedding dress and we wind up in a thong, you know, it's like, there's a, <laughs> there's a progression there. And I'm very intentional about like trying to put on the stage as many, um, feminine stereotypes, like in fashion, like just like visual that work their way from things that I associate with oppression to things I associate with freedom. So cone bras and thongs, <laughs> Uh, being on one end of the spectrum and songs about masturbation. And then on the other end of the spectrum is rolling pins, pearls, you know, frying pans, brooms, wedding dresses. And then in the middle, you know, I do things like I get my armpits shaved on stage and like, <laughs> I like realize that I'm by in every single show and like have a sexy burlesque number where I'm the, unre- the unrequited lover, you know, in jealousy and things like that. So every single time I'm telling the show, it kind of, I'm doing a show. It, I'm sort of telling the same story over and over again, which I realize actually, uh, wow. Okay. I'm realizing this real time. I guess that is my story. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Like, duh, <laughs> I'm cracking up now. Yeah. You know, these like traditional conventional concepts of like what's allowed for me as a woman, I depict those at the beginning of the show and work my way towards like, I can do whatever the hell I want. And that would probably line up with my time here on earth so far. Have, have you talked to a lot of people after sh- uh, shows who've, who've uh, been encouraged by your music to sort of explore and, and, and be more free in their own lives? I have, it's, it's been really, really great to see the comments, this is going to be a shocker from men, because I think that men are maybe a little scared of interacting with feminism and my show like gives them a really easy, like low hanging fruit way to do that because the show is, is sexy sometimes. And it is funny sometimes, but it's political the whole time. And so I think it's like, a great way for someone who like doesn't engage with like their, their Instagram feed doesn't look like my Instagram feed. You know, they don't necessarily know anybody who has non conventional pronouns like those type of people, I think really respond to the show because it is like a peek into this more radical world, but like through things like burlesque and drag and comedy and it's like a concert. And so they're like, Oh wait, I can engage with this. Versus like reading an article, you know, it's like then I, what I hope is that because of the show, now they go and read articles. You know what I mean? It's sort of like a chicken egg, I guess, <laughs> situation. But I feel like because it's a concert and it's this setting where people are like invited to be like, let go and like feel free and yada, yada, that people in, that might not otherwise engage if they were like presented with a bullet point list of what I'm saying on a sheet of paper, they engage because of the way it's being presented to them. 
that's why. And then of course, you know, I love the re- reactions from women being like, oh my God, like, oh, I always feel so gross when my ar- armpits aren't shaved. And I realize <laughs> I shouldn't. And it's like, yeah, if that's the takeaway, fuck yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I first discovered you, I was just like, I, first I heard the music and then I looked you up and, and I was, I loved the visual and sort of the, the contradiction of your look with the roller pins and the cone bras. And I was just like, uh, obsessed in a healthy way. Like I was just like, this is fucking incredible. Like I didn't want it to sound like I was obsessed. Like I'm moving to new Orleans and I'm going to find her. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Hey, I actually just got an alert that, um, we're having like some severe weather. So I'm going to go down to the basement. (laughs) (laughs) The best well, that might be a great ending for the episode. Yeah, that's the best ending I ever had. Uh, 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 yeah, Nashville doesn't play when it comes to tornadoes. That that Christian school I told you about that I, I grew up going to, spent a decade going to, was completely leveled um, about like February of last year, right before COVID. It's like we've had some really tough ones lately in Nashville. All right, well, get safe and... Uh, yeah. Okay, thank you so <laughs> much. Fine. Okay. All right, thank you. Bye. Bye. Hope that Jesus ain't watching this Dance like no one's watching Make love like us is turning the blind Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with The Wire Please become a Patreon subscriber If you like, also subscribe to the show On your iTunes or what have you not And tell your friends about the show That would mean a lot to me As well as uh, go to the link tree in the show notes Or themattdwire.com Or Conversations with The Wire at the Instagram And you could learn more about the show buy merch, and all those great things. Thank you very much for listening.